Well, thank you all for coming. I'm Dr. Seth Whidden. I'm uh, one of the professors in the French program here in the Department of Romance Languages at Villanova. I'm delighted to see so many people here. There's not much we can do outside in, in this weather, so it's probably a good thing that we came inside and listened to something fascinating that we have before us this afternoon. Uh, on behalf of the Department of Romance Languages and Literatures, I'd like to thank all of you for coming to this exciting event. And before I say a few words about this afternoon's speaker, I'd like to thank the many people and organizations whose support has helped to make Dr. Nicolas' visit to campus possible. Their names appeared in the numerous announcements and printed materials that were circulated, but I'd like to take a moment and thank them publicly here. So I extend my gratitude not only to my colleagues in, the, in my host department of Romance Languages and Literatures, um, but also to all of the faculty in the French program, some of whom are here in the back of the room this afternoon. Thank you very much for coming and for your support. And also to uh, other programs who have offered generous financial support. English, Gender and Women's Studies, History, Honors, the Institute for Global and Interdisciplinary Study, the Graduate Liberal Studies Program, the Office for Mission and Ministry, and Political Science. I hope I got everyone. If I didn't, I really tried. <laughs> Lastly, thank you to my students, particularly those in my upper-level course on poetry, who had the privilege of learning from Dr. Nicolas earlier today, and who have come back for more. Today's speaker, Candice Nicolas, is visiting assistant professor at Bucknell University. Originally from Paris, she studied in Sergi Pontoise and at the University of Bristol, and then earned a DOA at Université Rennes de Haute-Bretagne. Some of you have heard of that place. And she received her PhD at The Ohio State University in 2006, where she completed a dissertation entitled Cataclysme Poétique du Poète Maudit au Poète Déchéant, Rimbaud Cocteau Vian. As this title suggests, she is interested in 19th and 20th century French literature and culture, and including cinema. And her studies, which have appeared in the journal Parade Sauvage, and as a book chapter in Homosexualities in Contemporary Francophone Visual Cultures, demonstrate a wide range of interests in both her teaching and in her research. In addition, just this past week, she signed a contract to publish her first novel, entitled Rumi, with BSC Publishing in Montpellier. And BSC's website states, Nous publions des textes qui déclenchent en nous un coup de cœur. So that speaks very well to your first novel. It will come out in November, and I hope that she'll remember us having invited her to Villanova when she's a famous best-selling author. I'm sure that she'll be happy to talk about her novel, which is a sort of Bridget Jones story set in the United <laughs> States. That's what you said. It is, anyway. it is. But first, we're honored to hear more about Arthur Rimbaud in Dr. Nicolas' talk, which is entitled Identifying Evil, Exploring the Male, Rimbaud Against the Second Empire. Thank you very much, uh, Seth. Can you hear me OK? Yeah. OK, so I wish I could just Okay, so I wish I could just like do a little impro in English, but as uh, Seth mentioned, I'm from Paris and that's not going to be possible. So I hope my English will be okay enough. I give like a handout for everyone with like poems some of you uh, are probably already like read. And uh, I'm going to start with a little uh, historical uh, reminder. So after the brief success of the revolution to dismiss monarchy and install the First Republic, Napoleon Bonaparte establishes his own empire with a coup d'etat in 1799 and rules until 1815. Then the Bourbon family maintains the monarchy through 1830, which then falls in just three days in July, called the Three Glorious Days. Ministerial and parliamentary agitations, barricades and popular upheavals forced Charles X and his family to exile and brings Louis-Philippe to the throne. 
king of the French and not king of France, Louis-Philippe reigns until the 1848 revolution, which results in the advent of the Second Republic out of five. But Louis-Napoleon Bonaparte, first president of the French Republic and obviously the last of the Second Republic, decides to replicate his uncle's coup d'etat on December 2nd, 1851. For a second time, ideas of liberty and equality disappear for the heirs of the revolution because of the Bonaparte family. Arthur Rimbaud was born in 1854 at the first dawn of the Second Empire. Inspired by the best, Racine, Hugo, Baudelaire, he demonstrates very rapidly spectacular skills at lexical and rhetorical transgression, transgressions and a tenacious test for provocation. To explore the Baudelarian unknown suggested in The Voyage, Rimbaud requires mysterious inventions as partly revealed in his Sears letter of 1871. He begins his poetic journey by reinventing the two common known. The Parnassian muses, outdated language, commonplaces, too often explored romantic topics, they all have to go. Child prodigy or genius poet, renowned for his whimsical vowels, acclaimed for his sublime drunken boat, cursed for his infernal season, or canonized for his enchanted illuminations, Rambo is nonetheless the maestro of severe and sometimes forgotten caricature and strict denunciation of government and religious injustices the church, the administration, the military, the pillars that once built country's pride are now destroying 19th century French society. When the new emperor promises empire is peace, it, it, it is without mentioning his military campaigns, taking French troops from Crimea to Mexico, from Italy to Prussia, from little victories to crushing defeats. Rimbaud, therefore, has no doubt in identifying the evil France is suffering from. France decadence takes a new name, Napoleon III. Like Hugo, Rimbaud tends to inflict his personal castigations on the emperor. But he goes further and wants the entire Second Empire to be pilloried. In pieces such as Dead of 92 and 93, The Blacksmith, or Evil, and Parisian Orgy, he speaks up against the endless wars and the inability of those who govern us. With Tartuffe's punishment and the exceptional squatsings, he attacks directly a lying and corrupted church while making the emperor, thief of the republic and freedom, the protagonist of his invectives. Tiff. Evil then takes several shapes, attitudes, and disguises. To push it away, Rimbaud formulates a plan of attack. He explores the terrible figure of his enemy, crossing Napoleon's still smoking battlefield, and witnesses the male's degeneration from God on earth to senile grandpa. The poet continually deplores the insanity of war and acclaims the inevitable decline of the empire, refining his ironical and sarcastic style to condemn political and poetical treason. Indeed, Rimbaud's work revolves first of all around poetry. A poetry wants to be useful, meaningful, powerful. Thanks to his fascinating creativity, the author can take us to smoking furnaces, ash fields, or love scenery to exemplify his objective poetry. Death to the tyrant, death to the, music, to the passive muse, and death to the fake poetry they inspire. Today I will explore Arthur Rimbaud's illustration of objective poetry. As we shall see, Rimbaud gives himself a new role as a poet, advocating to his readership the real march forward. 
far away from the empire and it cl its clowns. First, through an investigation of the blacksmith, I identify one facet of Rimbaud's evils. evils. Here, the poet undertakes a jolly revolutionary comedy, which despite his tedious length and repetitions, shows his method of protesting. Next, with anti-Bonapartist rage, follow two sonnets, Evil and Caesar's Rages. As proposed by Pierre Brunel in his study, This Heartless Rimbaud, I am bringing together these three pieces as they all demonstrate Rimbaud's concern for the people. The blacksmith shows in what we have to admit is a rather clumsy way, the poet's indignation for injustice, while the two others insist more on the pain of the unfortunate victim of meaning meaningless wars and of a deaf god. And finally, to contrast Rambo's exploration of the figures, together we will accompany Nina into another endless fight, a tiresome country trip with their long-winded lover. We will then be able to conclude that in what was a very short poetic career, Rambo proves how men and politics are irreconcilable and how the time for woman and republic has finally come. While France declares war on Prussia, Rimbaud becomes historian and reminds us of the people uprising during the French Revolution and of the timid steps of the aborted First Republic. His cut and dry ideal, ideals emphasize the anti-imperialistic diatribes written in the beginning of 1870, while the regime is inexorably collapsing. According to friends and relatives, Rimbaud always showed revolutionary feelings. At a young age, imitating Hugo and sympathizing with socialism, he becomes politically committed and excel at satirizing. In 1870, in the shadow of 1789, France is separated between a declining force, the imperial regime, and the rising one, the working class. Both are staged in the blacksmith, whose forte is the decor itself. So on the second page, you have the very long blacksmith uh, poem, and I underlined for you uh, the verses that I'm going to refer to. Okay? You have one? Okay. So the very place where the blacksmith exercises his art reveals his nature as il and illustrates the submission of an entire people swarming underground. Indeed, the forge brings together heat, metals, and the roughness of life. It is the cradle of tools to work, to hunt. It dresses horses, and it pays his villages hard labor. The reader is sinking into an infernal furnace. He suffocates and already undergoes a long, gigantic, and rational derangement of all the tenses that you will see in the seer letters. The monstrous poet aspires to a new concrete and educational role. Between repulsion and fury, he raises his voice against the emperor of the French, staying faithful, though, to the emperor of the verses, the Alexandrine. 178 of them, exactly, irregularly gathered and astrally of unequal quality. Two male figures are staged in this dirty satanic forge, the perfect antagonism to the white royal palace. The protagonists confront each other in a paroxysm of differences. On the one hand, the blacksmith is the symbol of the proletariat with his huge hammer. On the other hand, Louis XVI incarnates God on earth. The beggar you have on verse 113 from his high stature dominates the scene. In a quasi-caricature way, he embodies violence and strength 
perfect physical masculine domination à la Bourdieu. Rimbaud attributes him some impressive, impressive qualifications. Huge hammer, terrible withdrawnness and size, his brow large on verses one and two, and confirms his sexual power through phallic elements such as hammer, trumpet, horses, or dagger. But on the other hand, as Chevalier mentions in his symbols analysis, the, the blacksmith is not the creator, but his assistant, his instrument. Even though he does reign over fire and over iron, the master of the metal is still submissive to a higher power. In front of him, an effeminate king, pale as a victim on verse 9, is powdered as a woman. Louis XVI, that fat man on verse 4, is as meek like a dog. The king, like, like the rest of monarchy, is enormous and unmovable. His shallowness embodies the sardonapalism and abundance in which grovel the aristocracy and the haute bourgeoisie. It is worth mentioning this first cliché that makes rich people fat, a cliché that will quickly become recurrent in Rambo's brocades. Further, the reference on verse 26 to a well-done cake remains the famous answer Marie-Antoinette gave to the crowd who asked for bread, let them eat cake. The bread also reappears in The Frightened Ones, Les Effarés, where the traitor, the baker with a fat smile, joins the paunchy bourgeois. Rimbaud does not spare anyone. The king cannot rely on his virility to impress nor control the blacksmith. But surprisingly, he cannot compete in either wit nor oral tact. The blacksmith displays eloquent discourse and oratory flame and totally monopolizes the conversation. He definitively incarnates the male figure of the nation, emphasizing the fact that women still have no rights to legally express themselves. Indeed, the Declaration of the Rights, written on August 26, 1789, and still serving nowadays as a preamble of the French Constitution, specify rights and equality for every man, but not for every human being, which did not suit Olympe de Gouges' expectation of parity. She wrote the Declaration, Declaration of the Rights of Women and the Former Citizen in 1791 and got guillotined for that in 1793. The passion of his reproaches leads to the degeneration of the blacksmith's monologue in which he irrevocably condemns society and unfair privileges. The blacksmith's verbal flux is uncontrollable. He spews for reproaches, regrets, insults, and foolishness and we shall hear Rainbow's grievance here. While in the meantime, the pot-bellied satire remains silent and sweaty. Allusion to droit de seigneur, famine and poverty, insists on the lack of interest that the nobility and the clergy showed to the third estate's request. The member of the third, part of an enslaved caste, are condemned to horrible tasks. Cultivate fields they will never own, and you can see that on the first page, uh, verse 29 to 34, serve in a war they will never win, 42 to 46, offer their sons to serve their fatherland and their daughters to satisfy the lords, verse 45 and 51. One cannot but notice that it's always the same story. The story in the history repeats itself infinitely. That is where Rambo intervenes and calls to fight against these new beginnings which take us back to old histories. The poet, who will a few months later declare himself walker, seer, and above objective, 
emphasizes the failure of 1789 with the revival of the first Napoleon and warns us through the glints of the Third Republic against the rise of the bourgeoisie. Forced into slavery, the blacksmith work on his, with his good two hands, on verse 41, to fatten up a factious god so fat he holds upright on his belly, on the verse 8. The poetic vocabulary almost give out, gives out, rage and disgust take over. The poet throws out willy-nilly all of the injustice he, notice, he, not, he noted in his austerity textbook. He regrets how much these are still with us while Napoleon III, like his renowned predecessor, squanders the resource of the country and sacrifices his The blacksmith continues to surprise us, thanks to rich allegories, metaphors, and historical references. He reduces the royal palace to a magnificent barn, on verse 48, and puts in evidence the incontestable decadence of the monarchy, when mentioning the emergence of some needless old plowed bastards and peacocks. Not only burlesques, the buffon living at the court are carrying a pale sang bleu, pale blue blood. Murphy, Steve Murphy explained the blue blood of the royal family has been contaminated with underclass blood from the peasant girls who have been abused. Royalty is, not, is, only, is only a memory. Not only is the king pale now, but his degenerating offspring are also driving the country to ruin. Painted with white powder, dressed up with feathers and the peacocks and other trinkets, quaffed with an aigrette by way of a crown, the poor bastards, conceited and stupid, are upstaged to entertain the king of degeneration. Their transvestitism brings them closer to the females they are trying to court. The blacksmiths insist on their magnificent plumage and turn the feminization of his enemies to their animalization. Difficult to identify the male when this one is clouding the issues. Who are the real males? Only bastards and greedy knives inhabit the royal palace. Moreover, references to various winged creatures finish to give the palace a look of a vociferous menagerie. With polished aesthetic and rhythm, the poem offers loud sonorities, assonances, and alliterations to give a deafening effect of cacophony. From the Bonaparte's yard to the farmyard, birds of prey and common fowl illustrate the climate of instability and confusion that reigns in France. The reader distinctly witnesses the destitution of the Napoleon eagle, this embodiment of power, sovereignty, genius, and heroism. From the emblems of military victories to the peacock of the courtesan's garden, the French bird is in trouble. Even though the lens of the exposition arms the strengths of the denunciation, the political and poetical motivations assert themselves as firmly anti-monarchist and pro-popular, even populist. In my opinion, the quality of this poem is definitely underestimated. Because of its perhaps immature uh, passion as underlined by Asion, the major issues of class struggles are nevertheless at the center of the debate. Born of shapes and prejudices, Rimbaud keeps the criticism going in his even more harmful sonnets, Evil and Caesar's Rages. So you have this. Uh On page four, you have like both Evil and Caesar's Rages. So the advent of the Third Republic would have to wait the, uh, for the defeat at Sedan on September 2nd, 1870, 
and the emperor's capitulation. There is no doubt that by that time, Rimbaud is an insurgent, to borrow Gascar words. I quote, he rejects family, religion, traditional culture, bourgeoisie society. In these two sonnets, Rimbaud condemns Bonaparte's tyranny, which has twice already defied the liberties and principles of the republics. More accurately and concisely than in the previous poem, he denounces France's degeneration, the country being lost in a political war and a questionable relig religion. First evil puts God and Napoleon III on equal terms, equality in criminality and deafness to the rest of the world. Antoine Adam sees here a caricature in verses, above the dreadful idol who laughs and who sleeps, below the madness of massacres, the heaping of corpses, the litany of anguished women. The quatrains depict a battlefield riddled with holes of red, blue, and green. Blue and scarlet refer to French and Prussian soldier jackets that are merging, meddling with nature, and stained with blood. On the verse four, you have in the fire, then in a smoking hip. We are witnessing one of the greatest Napoleonian debacles. Next, the terces addressed a god on verse nine. Indifferent to pain, over the overshadowing earth, groveling in the greatness of the altars, erected to his own glory. According to Jean Collat, evil brings together a symmetric diptych, the front, the fire, the death, the men, the king, and in the two, uh, in the two quadrants, and in the terces, the ones who stayed, the woman, the mothers, the old, and the god that religion invented. In my opinion, both lords in heaven and on earth God and the emperor are united in the syntagm, the king who mocks them, on verse 3. Rimbaud, humanist adolescent, criticized luxury and proved the hypocrisy of the religious ceremonial. As in Tartuffe's punishment, he is cursing useless ecclesiastic who cherish a lord who does not care about the ones who serve him and sacrifice to him. The poet mourns this needless death and juxtaposes the waste with a fooling nature hostile and deadly, as he already did in The Sleeper of the Valley. He, he categorically rejects divine creation when with all you, he directly calls nature itself, the same one that takes back its goods right after having made this man holy. Who or what is this evil? Our emperor, another king, war, or God himself? An amalgam or of unattainable powers impossible to fight against? Opinion or diverse? A first suggestion by Etienne Blain-Glauclair will be an alliance of God and Caesar, where this human God who packs with men is as abject as his creature. The poet accuses them both equally of the de degeneration of their communities. Murphy accuses, Rambo criticized the church, the French Catholic one, and the Protestant one from Prussia, both accomplices of reactionary states. Otherwise, we can also, as Adam, allegedly refuse the compromise. I quote, truth is brutal. The evil is God. It's the old idol, symbol of political and social order, symbol as well of all terrors and ignorance that wait on humanity. Allegedly, I say, because if Adam affirms evil is God, he also indicates the political order and the ignorance in which the church delights to educate its people and which are really on earth in the hands of the emperor. So evil can still be both. Assuredly, evil, if not God, is fundamentally inspired by him. 
if divine rights of kings has existed since Charlemagne, it is still pursued and perpetrated by men, monarchs and clergy, traitors and conspirators. For Louis Forestier, evil is the war, the God that allowed it, but especially the collusion of the throne and the altar. God might not be directly responsible for, war, for wars, but he does let them happen. I will add to this evil identification that one should look for this male incarnation. Male and evil, incidentally, are both pronounced mal in French. Le mal, le mal. But emperor, god, and obscurantism are also masculine in French. Rimbaud states, men are generally wrong. Impossible to separate one evil from another. Like a two-headed eagle that haunts the country and spread misery. Caesar's rages simplifies the task when using a double plural. The Caesars embody all of the tyrants who attempt to blow out liberty very softly, like a candle. The plural brings together all of the male, males who try to ruin the female republic, la république, embodied by Marianne, female allegory of liberty and reason, opposed to the decrepit Gallic rooster. Or perhaps are they referring to the excessive passion for Caesar that Napoleon has, as shown in his History of Julius Caesar in 1866. Regardless, these two S's mean too much of evil. The capitulation of Sedan is finally the only fair result of his 20 years orgy from the verse 5. After his coup d'etat, he feels his back is broken. The rest of the man the emperor used to be is now disabled. When emphasizing the past errors, Rambo manages to lead his reader to his march toward progress. The degeneration of the empire and of male power is almost ludicrous. The pale man on verse 1, referring the pale king, remembers his flooring lounge, the flowers of the Tuileries, but not a thought goes to the 80,000 prisoners of his particularly unsuccessful last campaign. The splendid male conqueror and viral has lost most of his attributes. He is burning like, like his cigar on verse 13, which is a firm allusion to his impotence. His eye is dull and soon dead and declares the death of his sexual appetite. His lips are mute and prevent him from expressing any desire or from wanting murdered pleasure. Blind and mute, the emperor resembles the clownish king of the blacksmiths, and everyone knows what happened to that one. Rambo imposes his sarcasm, legendary by now, with delight and takes a guilty pleasure in making the worst of the emperors the clown of our nation, le pire des pitres. The tyrant who does not frighten anyone anymore, no only inspire pity. He eventually takes the shape of a buffoon in the modern caricature of the dazzling victory of Sarbrook, as will his lineage in the Zutik, the child who picked the balls. The dazzling victory of Sabro completes the Rimbaldian quest to dislodge power. The son effects a Bonapartist propaganda extolling an impressive victory that was everything but won. The poet focuses here more on the irony of war and its ridiculous consequences than on man's intellectual, if not sexual, capacities. The humoristic turns this piece takes is just phenomenal. Napoleon shifts from war hero to impotent zero. The battlefield actually becomes a playground where the emperor plays on his horsey. 
The landscape is now painted with multicolor, multicolor hues and resembles more a children's coloring book than a war painting with dark military red and green. In this prolapsarian ground, we witness the degeneration of the male. Men are actually not fighting, they are napping, as in kindergarten. Sexual allusion like cannon, chaspeau, rifle, backside, strengthen the preceding Caesar's 20 years orgy and make sure to totally discredit the emperor who lost the most valuable part of his use, his sexual skills. The finishing blow is the ultimate question of what on the verse 14, continuing the long live the emperor. Indeed, the emperor of what? But Rambo will not stipulate the rude answer. After having succeeded too many Caesars, Napoleon III and the last comes down his Olympian pedestal to go bitty by with the pew pew, where children help each other to discover the treasures of their anatomy. Zeus on earth is only the ghost of himself, the shadow of a destitute king, half senile and lecherous, dark with blue, yellow and orange as a clown. To finish the portrayal of the imperial family, Rambo adds one last vignette, the child who picked up the ball that depicts the prince. This design follows up, follows up on Sarbrook adventure and the lineage of impostors, here Napoleon IV, reaffirming that the time has come for the Republic. Derision becomes Rimbaud's best anti-constitutional weapon. Despite his traditional poetic forms, sonnets, alexandrines, he still brings the first stones to build his revolution on language towards poetic degeneration itself. The main actor of this movement is actually an actress. In Venus and Adieu Men and My Little Lovers, for example, Rambo refuses to perpetuate the role of woman as passive muse. He clearly announces the new place she is to take in his serious letters, placing her in the center of his objective poetry. So I'm going to talk about the, the, your last poem, Nina's replies, very long as well, and I'm going to concentrate on only the last verse, the 116th. Nina's replies is another very long poem with less socio-historical content than the fustigation of the blacksmith. Rambo blends heady colors and ravishments for the senses in a bucolic decor and portrays a young woman, a young couple, sorry, dreaming of a country trip. It is rather the dream of the young man who is frenetically spilling romantic barrels and hopes to convince his lady friend to follow him in the good orchards with bluegrass. The antiquated lyricism and long, drawn-out descriptions of spring-like drunkenness are severally misinterpreted sorry, as some of the weakest parts of Rimbaud's work, in the same vein as, for example, Sun and Flesh, Soleil et Cher. On the contrary, this poem acts for me as strong proof of novelty and ingenuity in which the young poet deliberately mocks the effect of subjective poetry on its muse. Unlike in Venus and Adieu Men, where woman is the victim of time passing or men passing, here Nina is bored to death by the endless passions she instills. Two dotted lines amid a good hundred verses for several animals to parade, around various sorts of trees, either refer to a silent moment where he decides to go for action and stop talking for a while. Not reaching his goal, thinking Nina is not drunk from his word yet, he goes back to his soliloquy in a more convincing way. 
They might also represent an aborted attempt of Nina's response. But in vain, the subjective poet does not listen to his muse. She is subject to his exploitive interpretation of her. We could see a parody, among other models from antiquity, of Ronsard's Ode to Cassandra, Loda Cassandre, where the narrator does not leave room for the young girl's reply either. Eventually, Nina manages to get her own 116 verse. Her own single reply asks, Et mon bureau? This last verse can be translated in English either into and my office, and by extension maybe my clerk office, or and my desk. Nina is driven by her own thoughts and firmly imposes herself, cutting the haunting, um, haunting monologue short. This time, the woman muse gets rid of the poet. I enjoy this unique reply immensely. Gonouli comments the only intervention of Nina in the last verse is impressive. It procures a rare opportunity to witness the nuptial dance of a precocious adolescent, the sexual parade that allows to understand the evolution of his imaginary world. Indeed, the description of this precoital excitation seems to be more brutal than a simple invitation to eroticism or lust. He tells Nina about a sort of premonitory dream he had in which they had already made love. He describes the lights and the sensations emanating from their passionate acts. They are fully intoxicated to keep the drunkness mood of the poem by their lovemaking. Your breast on my breast, on verse one, the two satisfied lovers let themselves dream to a post-orgasmic euphoria, driving to a synesthetic delirium that gives taste and colors to caresses and even to orgasms. My interpretation favors not the male parade, but the act of copulation itself. The male lover, satisfied ahead of time, relays his future performances and wants to convince his partner through incredible promises to realize them together. Lee considers that the imaginary of the seducer deifies his partner in identifying the female body to the woman nature in which he can show himself. Man gives this femme nature status to woman to legitimize his behavior toward her. Should a man and nature, so woman, unite to preserve human species? To me, it seems more that the good Nina is destined to remain the enslaved vestal of the temple nature. Remembering Baudelaire's correspondences, nature is a temple, and man passes through without understanding the symbols, which, on the contrary, decipher him perfectly. You have the quotation of uh, Baudelaire on the, first, uh, on the first page. Nature is a temple in which living pillars sometimes give voice to confused words. Man passes there through forests of symbols which look at him with interesting eyes. La femme nature mère, the woman nature mother, is condemned to virginity or procreation. She cannot liberate herself from her alienable burden, and man is taking advantage of her to fulfill the call of his nature. The young interlocutor smoothly brings together the symbolic and the importance of fertility and reproduction, adding the psychosomatic ravishment of the supreme orgasm. He incites Nina, in what he thinks in a strict way, to allay, to allay duty and pleasure. On her side, the woman who has accepted her status of legacy bearer for generations is not easy to convince, especially with the promising reward of a one-way orgasm. Motivated by her own convictions and now led by her individual fantasies, she wants to know what happened to her desk office in the story. <laughs> 
So first of all, desk or office. Forestier says, if the word bureau meant clerk office, to what Chambon replies strongly, the if of Mr. Forestier is too much, because that is exactly what it is about. Any other interpretation will result in a misreading and will take away all of the weight of Nina's reply and thus to the entire poem. Steinmetz is, is less categorical and says about the young woman's intervention, either Nina thinks about her work as a clerk office or she is worried about another one of her lovers who works in an office. Basically, for the critics, mostly male, as I mentioned, Nina is either thinking about her work or her other lover. The two possibilities are acceptable, but for me, the either or remains nevertheless simplistic. Indeed, why somewhere else and why with someone else? Are women systematically annoyed with their regular partners, or are they all fickle? It seems obvious in the male critic's eyes that coming from a woman, the question suggests either boredom or adultery. But even in love, Nina is totally able to realize by herself how ordinary male fantasies are. What if, the, if she simply does not care about overused metaphors? Are trembling woods on verse 7 or champagne bubbles on verse 19 the only magical ingredient for lucky encounters? Nina quickly breaks the, po the poet's dream and men's in general, debunking the cheap approach stratagem and pseudo-romantic cliché. She brings him back to reality, subjecting a much less fantasist act, not in a faraway country, but here on her desk. Firmly, the woman abruptly takes control of her drives <coughs> and dares to affirm her sexuality. While Baudelaire exposed the degeneration of woman as an object of desire, like in a carcass, La Charogne, Rimbaud refuses more her use as a subject of inspiration. He foresees and accepts her modernity that would lead to her sexual emancipation with men being ready for it or not. She finally succeeds in getting the yoke of off men and of the subjective poet who by pure egotism omits her desire to only know their physical appearance related to his pleasure. Subjective poetry and poet's passivity are openly deplored, as in Venus and Anadiomen. Woman, like man, is able to express herself and does not need to be interpreted or translated. Shamelessly, shamelessly Nina demands her orgasm. You have to be a man to think all of this babbling is going to take you anywhere. Rimbaud is no fool. He foreshadows, and I quote the seal letters. When the endless servitude of woman is broken, when she lives for and by herself, man, heretofore abominable, having given her her release, she too will be a poet. Woman will find some of the unknown. Will her world of ideas differ from ours? She will find strange, unfathomable, repulsive, delicious things. We will find them, we will understand them. Nina escapes the spring-like sphere the Parnassian have in mind for her. She will join the objective poets and taste new experiences on their own path to creation. To conclude, I will say that objective poetry is definitely en marche for Rimbaud. The famous seal letters reveal its poetic strategy. The author is already present at this birth of his revolutionary thought, a thought he is pr to, proud to share through his character's voice. Alongside the proletariat in great effervescence, he accuses the power that that be, and calls to mind all of the historical horrors inflicted on the lower classes.
since the Great Revolution, as the situation changed? Are the children of the third estate now spared by the heirs of those of Crown's heads? heads? Thanks to his convincing verve, infused with obfusc obfuscating words, witty lexical branches, and energetic caricature rhythm, Rimbaud proposes shocking and loud paintings to illustrate his subversive ideals. The poet imposes his gusto for the prefix anti, anti, and applies it to each one of the traditional values of France, anti-imperialism, anti-militarism, and anti-clericalism. Poetically wise, the obsolete themes are forgotten. New words emerge, and the woman is not an observed muse anymore, but a walking poetess, identifying evil, exploring the male, recognizing the female, the female Rambo shows in this fin de siècle how the time has undeniably come for woman and republic. La République. Thank you.